Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Andy Rowe Show. Tim Clissold is a British expert on China. He's a senior research associate at Cambridge University and author of the international bestseller, Mr. China. You're going to hear Tim tell the incredible story about how he ended up working with a Wall Street trader to invest, lose and then try to recover 400 million US dollars in mainland China back when the country first opened up to foreign direct investment in the 1980s. He talks through some of the stresses, cultural differences and surreal experiences that he went through during his time there. We also get his thoughts on the unrest in Hong Kong, the expansion policy in the South China Sea, corporate espionage and of course COVID. Tim gives a very different perspective on China that you very rarely hear in Western media. I hope you enjoy the episode. Joining me now is China business expert, best-selling author. Time Magazine described his first book, Mr. China, as an instant classic. Tim Clissold, thank you very much for joining me. You're welcome. Mate, how did you end up in China? Um, it was sort of by an accident. I mean, to be completely truthful, um, I was suffering from a broken heart. Oh. He says I, I just split up with someone I was very fond of, and I couldn't really make sense out of my life in London. And I suddenly had an opportunity to go and work in the Far East. So I just grabbed it with both hands. And um, so I ended up in Hong Kong. And this was in 1987. And I was immediately fascinated by it, mainly due to the written word, because the Chinese characters are so different from, from our language. And I think within about three weeks, I'd sort of gone to China. And I was just completely amazed by it, because you kind of went up the Pearl River on this boat overnight. He went up 70 miles, he went back 70 years. So like in, the, in those days, there's almost complete absence of internal combustion engine, right? There's, uh, basically it was all sort of hand-driven stuff or leg-driven stuff. Uh, no street lights, uh, totally different. I've never met anyone more passionate about Chinese culture than you. What appeals to you about how they operate? So, so there is a tremendous learning opportunity between east and west okay so i'd like to tackle this in two stages so the first one as i want to tell you very briefly the story of a woman called tu yo yo okay so she won the nobel prize for medicine in 2015 most people never even heard of her haven't heard of her. So what right so what happened was in 1967 ho chi minh contacted mao because ho chi minh was losing more people to malaria on the ho chi minh trail than to american bombs so he approached Mao saying, can we please like, have an effort to deal with malaria? And Mao agreed because the southeastern, the southwestern provinces of China are also um, subject to malaria. So what happened was 
Tuyo was put in charge of a project to find a medicine for malaria. And she found it and she saved about 100 million lives as a result of that. That's wow. why she got the Nobel Prize. The way she found it was she researched traditional Chinese medicine books. And she came up with about 240 different cures for fever. Okay. And she struggled with it and she used Western techniques to extract the active ingredient. So fractional distillation, chromatography, all that kind of stuff, which is pretty crude in those days, but Western techniques applied to Eastern wisdom. Okay. And she found a um, active ingredient in a plant called sweet wormwood because Chinese traditional medicine is all about, you know, animal parts and, and plants and stuff. So she found it and it worked in mice and then she tried to extract larger quantities of it and it didn't work in, in humans, okay? So she went back to the books and she found a book which is written in 365, which said that if you used in sweet wormwood, you had to take a handful of it and plunge it into cold water, right? So she thought, oh, hang on a minute, it, it needs to be in cold water, but I'm using kind of boiling water to extract it. So maybe it destroys the active ingredient. So she used alcohol, which boils at a lower temperature and extracted the active ingredient. And that led to a drug called artemisinin, which led to 100 million people's lives being saved and a Nobel Prize. The Americans were trying to do it at the same time. Uh, so the military institution was also trying to solve that and they failed to do it because they relied entirely on Western techniques. Whereas Tu Yo Yo used both of them, right? So if you think about the world's problems, we've basically got two absolutely core problems. One is inequality, global inequality. And two is humankind's interaction with the environment, specific, you know, particularly in terms of climate change. And the Chinese have got a plan for both those things. We may not like all of it, but at least they've got a plan. And the only way that we can possibly tackle those two twin problems is by global cooperation. And you know, the Chinese have a, a much more muscular approach to organizing an economy. So with climate change, you've got a real problem because the cost of the emissions of carbon isn't priced in by the market. With development, it's the same with infrastructure. So infrastructure-led development without government state sponsorship is very, very difficult. So without a, quite a muscular approach by the government, it's very difficult to see how climate change and inequality can be addressed. And the Chinese have already way down that path. You know, they put, they put in so, so much renewables, you just wouldn't believe it. I was, I was on a train in Xinjiang um, uh, about two years ago. I set off out of the station in Kashgar on a train, okay? And I was in a wind farm and we went the entire night and I woke up in the wind farm. And I spent the whole of the next day in the wind farm and the following night and then arrived in Urumqi, right? So that is just, it, it's, it, it's definitely bigger than the whole of the UK, the length of that, that, that ride. So they put in something like 250 gigawatts of wind power in the last sort of um, eight years or something. They've put in a wind farm that's bigger than the size of the UK. It, well, it, in, in, term, in terms of the, the, the amount of renewable energy that's been put into China right. uh, over the last decade, it's, it's about 200 gigawatts of wind and 200 gigawatts of solar. So to put that in context, mm. the entire UK's national grid's capacity is 65, right? And they put 400 in, in just solar and wind. Right. You can't do that without a very, very muscular approach where they basically what, what happened was they said, we are going to invest in solar panels and we're going to build solar panels and we don't care what profit we make. We need to do that 
in a way that a market economy never could. Yeah, and, and because so much resource was put in it and it reached mass production, the price of solar panels has gone to 10% of what it was 10 years ago. So now it's all viable. But when you look at China and, you, and you're mentioning two main things there, climate and inequality, from the West point of view, you see a smoky Beijing and massive inequality and in, in poverty in China. Is that not kind of what you see as well? Or is, it, is there a different story there? Right, so that, so there, were, there were problems um, with atmospheric pollution in the cities. And, and it's quite a good example of the way that the Chinese government reacts. So there was a big builder for public opinion saying we have to deal with this problem. And that happened about 10 years ago. And they've dealt with it. So the cities in China now are absolutely extraordinary. So I was, I was in Xi'an, which is in central China, in um, not last year, because I couldn't go to China for obvious reasons, but the year before last. And basically there are, there are no vehicles in Xi'an which use gasoline, right? So they, they have to either be electric or natural gas, right? So if you bought a diesel Range Rover the day before the regulations came in, tough. Right? You, just, you can't drive it. You're not allowed to drive it. So, and, and then that might seem very extreme, but it does yield results. OK, so and, and then um, on that trip, I was in Xi'an and then I basically got on a bike and rode 400 miles north until I found the Great Wall. On, on that journey, I used to see these huge trucks. Right. So trucks are very difficult because you can't change because the energy density of diesel and gasoline is so much greater than natural gas. You can't run a big haulage truck off natural gas. So what they've done is they've used liquefied gas. Okay, so everywhere throughout Shanxi, which is like the central province, there are stations where trucks, big five-ton trucks, can reload up on liquefied natural gas, which means that they put in a system that can handle tens of thousands of tons of liquid at minus 180 degrees centigrade. They just put that infrastructure in. So, you know, characterizing China as tremendously unequal and poor and dirty is basically the story of 20 years ago. Your book, Mr. China. Are you Mr. China? Who's Mr. China? <laughs> so the, the whole point of calling it Mr. China is that Mr. China doesn't really exist. So Mr. China is like this illusion of uh, a very excited foreigner who looks at this massive market and thinks it's all integrated and wants to kind of get into it. You had a fund of 400 million back then that was worth about 1.2 billion in today's terms. Well, I was, I was quite junior at that stage. So I was only about 30 years old. So I didn't have any kind of delusions that I would ever be a Mr. China. So I didn't really feel like that. Tell me about the money that you had when you went over there and, and what the plan was. So I spent a couple of years in a university in Beijing, just, just after Tiananmen Square, when there were very few foreigners around. And um, cut a long story short, I, I basically I met a Wall Street banker in Hong Kong who had come over from in New York to try and set up a, a fund which would invest in Chinese businesses. And uh, he, he basically came up with a plan to take controlling stakes in lots of different um, businesses that manufactured automotive components. But anyway, he went back and in six weeks, including over Christmas, he raised $158 million, which wow. is just an absolutely enormous amount. And then we invested that very rapidly in seven factories. And then he went back for another hundred million and that took about another six weeks. We invested that in a brewery in, in Beijing, uh, a beer brewery. 
And uh, then he went back for another lot for the auto components and raised about another 160 or something. So you've got all this money together. You've started to try and invest into different areas. At what point did you realize something wasn't quite right? The first, the first time I ever realized that there was difficulties it was basically getting information. So we'd invested 40 million bucks in a, a fuel injection factory in, in Beijing, which had kind of modern fuel injection, cut down on pollution. They wanted to buy all these machines, and each machine was about 750 grand. Very, very high precision machinery. And they were going to buy sort of 20 of them or something. So, you know, a substantial amount of money. So I went over to try and understand, you know, the justification of this sort of massive investment. And I remember I spent about two hours with the general manager. And it all sounded terribly plausible when I was there. All these explanations about why he'd chosen this equipment and what it would do and stuff. When I got back to the office and tried to explain it to my colleagues, I just couldn't put it, in, put it together at all. It just didn't make any sense. So I remember I went back the following day to try and get the right answers. Fill in the gaps. Uh, and, and, the, and the core thing was a, um, was a big schedule of, of all, all the um, machinery he wanted to buy. And I said, you know, is, is, is this an accurate list? And I remember he said, Ying Gai Shi. So Ying Gai Shi in Chinese means it ought to be, right? Which doesn't mean anything. I mean, it either is right or it isn't right. It's not a question of it ought to be. Of course it ought to be, but is it right? So, so there was just kind of endless wrangling and trying to get to the bottom of what was really going on. You tried to bring some Western practices to the Chinese companies, didn't you? So I, I remember this distinctly. I, I used to have to go back to the US about every quarter to kind of update people on what had been going on. And th those meetings just became more and more stressful because it was just so difficult to explain to them what was really happening. Why was it so difficult? Well, because, 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 the, because the context was so... Totally. So I'll give you one example. There was a factory we had in Harbin that made uh, ignition coils. And in the mid 90s, there was a, a banking crisis in China. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't really a banking crisis. It was a crisis of interconnected debt. It was called um, triangular debt. So, you know, factory A owed factory B some money and factory B owed factory C and then factory C owed factory A. Right. So the whole thing was kind of completely you know, blocked, the factories were trading on barter, right? So they were making ignition coils and then they'd send it to a factory and, and the other factory would pay for it in truckloads of shampoo, right? <laughs> so, 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 that, so then the managers of our factory use the shampoo to pay for the wages, right? And then, and then all the, 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 the workers used to just go out on the street and sell the shampoo, Right. So how can you explain that to someone who's kind of used to being at the top of General Electric Corporation and just dealing with kind of spreadsheets? And it's so difficult to explain. Yeah. So you might have uh, a factory worker that gets paid in shampoo, but then they go and sell that shampoo and then they get that money and that's how they yeah, get paid. Yeah. So, so what they did was they hired some very, very senior people in the US who then helped assemble an operating team. So what happened when you... You put the senior operators in. Wasn't there? Was that weird? There was the factory riots and so yeah, we had strikes and lockouts and every everything you could possibly imagine. Yeah, there was one instance. Well, I was held hostage for nine hours by a group of eighty workers because we'd removed the factory manager, and and some of our people were in a factory and they were just sitting in an office, two stories office upstairs, and a full bottle of beer crashed through the window and exploded on the wall next to their heads. Tell me about how you were held hostage. Talk me through that story. 
So, so we, we, we changed the general manager and managed to change all the bank accounts. We got hold of all the corporate records and all this kind of stuff. But then, so that, that it was on a Friday. I can remember it was on a Friday. And then the following Monday, I was in Shanghai and, and a call came through from this joint venture, which was in, it was in uh, Hubei, which is like in the center of China. And, you know, there's like people said, oh, there's, there's been a riot at the factory. So basically what had happened was that the old general manager who had been ousted incited about 200 workers to surround the main office building. And uh, yeah, there was one instance where, where I was in a hotel and then um, the union came to meet me in this meeting room. So I went into this meeting room, we had this kind of chat and then all these people sort of came into the meeting room. So I sort of got up to leave because it was they're, they're a bit threatening and I sort of walked outside and there were about 80 people outside. So I just completely unwittingly fallen into this trap. So basically you just kind of sit there and just don't do anything. And they, they wanted me to sign this sort of um, statement revoking the replacement of the general manager. So something about, you know, the foreign party through swindle and compulsion had ousted the um, Chinese rightful... Um, positions or something i can't remember anyway they thought they thought that they were going to pressure me into signing it and i just basically sat there and didn't do anything wow god it's a different different ball game you invested in a beer company as well didn't you that that was just sort of uh incompetence on an epic scale i'd probably say <laughs> what happened because because the management systems are so bad that the basically the quality control completely collapsed they used to use the old bottling old bottles right and then they go through this scrubbing process mm. and then be filled with new beer yeah and then send out to the market so 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 give you an idea there's one bottle that came back from the market and basically that the, the someone had used it for soy sauce right so there's this label still suck, stuck on it saying it was soy sauce rather than beer <laughs> and, 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 then, and then there's another one that had leaves in it another one that had a massive great ball of tape right so let, let me let me just read a bit here Years later, I met a manager from the Foster's joint venture in Tianjin who had experienced similar problems. He was once shown a bottle that must have been used for pickling garlic and had been found in the market. The bottle had been returned to the brewery for recycling in the normal way, put through the whole process, filled with Foster's lager, neatly labelled, capped and sent back into the market, packed with garlic bulbs. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that, that business is absolutely just the worst. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Can you tell me about the investment in the rubber factory and what happened there? It was, it was actually, um, that one was a, it was a rubber seal factory run by a very, very charismatic Chinese individual who again had met a lot of trouble in the Cultural Revolution. Three years after we had invested, he called me and he said he'd been given quota by the provincial government to take his company public. But he could only do that if he had more than 50%. And we had 60% of the shares. So he wanted to buy back 11%. So they had 51 and he could go public. We, yeah, we had to say no. He was stuck. 
with us. He was stuck as a minority. So basically what he did was he set up another factory about eight miles down the road, um, which was competing with ours. Still, still working for the same company. Yes, he was. I mean, he set up a rival factory, which, you know, surprisingly had all the kind of high margin product lines, <laughs> and, all, and our factory had all the low margin stuff. So, so we had we had no no choice but to sack him. But we had a completely different problem, which was that we had this rival factory just down the road, and yeah, you know, we had strikes. There was one day when 180 of the whole management team just left our factory and went down. The valley to the other factory um and and it, it was terrible ter- a terrible time and uh, it ended up with major civil unrest where there was a riot and there the were cars overturned and stuff and oh, the lo- local party secretary had to call the military police it was it was really bad you know pe- people were quite badly beaten and then you know ultimately we were able to meet with the guy because he wasn't a bad guy. He, he was, we both boxed ourselves into a situation where our economic interests just couldn't sit side by side. So, so I still kind of have quite a lot of respect for him. He taught me a lot. And uh, so we went our separate ways, we sorted it out, we split the business in a way that both sides could accept. He made a payment to us that actually happened. Both businesses are now, you know, still, still working in the same place. That guy... Last time I looked, I haven't looked for a long time, but he took his own company public. And uh, last time I looked, I think it was worth about 850 million US. I saw him about two years ago, we were in this big meeting room and he didn't know I was gonna be there. So I was interested how his reaction would be. And he kind of saw me and squinted at me. He's, he's aged quite a lot, of course I have as well. And he got up and he walked around the table and he patted me on the head. And he said, Tofar Baila, which means your hair's gone white. <laughs> I learned, I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot from him. He was an outstanding entrepreneur. Obviously, it was a pretty stressful time for you going through these things, a lot of money, a lot of pressure, a lot of stress. What was your health like during this period? It was fine for about 18 months. And then I just got so tired because I had quite a young family as well, which, as everybody knows, is tiring anyway. But I, I, I was just so completely exhausted and also trying to cope with jet lag because I used to have to go back to New York quite a lot to try and kind of explain what was going on. So I had kind of jet lag and a tremendous amount of stress. And what, once, once we'd figured out what to do, the stress kind of lifted a bit, but I was just t- totally didn't really know how to deal with the problems that were facing us. And uh, then, so, so we, we went to France as a family on a skiing holiday and... But anyway, I woke up in the middle of the night with a severe pain in my chest, pain going down my left arm, called an ambulance. And I, it, it, was, it was sort of quite early in the morning. It must have been sort of dawn time. So I guess about six o'clock in the morning. And uh, they must have sedated me because I didn't really know where I was or what I was doing. But anyway, I, I, I woke up in intensive care. And yeah, they told me I'd had a heart attack, which is quite a shock, to say the least. So I knew things were quite bad, but I didn't think it was as bad as that. But anyway, cut a very long story short, I was eventually flown back to the UK and then given various test angiograms and stuff like that. And they never really found out what it was, but it wasn't a heart attack. I think they, they basically just said, you know, systems are just so kind of down that you know, your body's just kind of packed up. But it was wow. it was quite a shock. It was, it was a shock. So 
it made me reevaluate stuff. And it was quite interesting because I didn't think that I want to kind of pack the whole thing in. And the reason, there's lots of reasons for that. But one of the reasons was that there were, there were just so many people who were struggling to do the best they possibly could. And I, didn't, I just didn't feel that I could kind of just abandon it. More generally looking at China now, can you explain the issues that are happening around the South China Sea? So the South China Sea is quite a knotty one. So the basics of the South China Sea is that the South China Sea is surrounded by nation states. And it's a vast expanse of water that has atolls, reefs and small islands on them. And there are contested claims to those islands by the various countries around the South China Sea. China being one of them, Japan being another, Philippines, um, Vietnam and probably others as well. So what you now have to do is try and look at this from you know, various viewpoints about how you ascribe sovereignty to territory. Okay, so one might be, yeah, you know, the custom customs and habits of the inhabitants. Yeah, naturally, kind of have been influenced, say, by Vietnam or something. Problem with these islands is they're uninhabited, so that doesn't really work. So then you say, okay, let's look at history. That doesn't really work either, because the concept of a nation state basically comes from the Peace of Westphalia which was like 1648 or something in a completely Western context, right? So the nation state didn't exist prior to that. You know, Germany didn't exist prior to 1879. Italy was uh, 1869 or something. So the concept of a nation state sort of jostling together is quite a recent one. So China never had the concept of fixed boundaries and borders. It had a tribute system. So it's difficult to say, well, China did or didn't have sovereignty over those islands you know, back in, say, 1600. But actually, it goes much, much further than that. So there are contemporary records in the Han Dynasty, which is the time of Christ, of fishing communities with a strong affinity to the southern coast of China. And there are other records in the Tang Dynasty, which is about 700. So, you know, you can't really kind of get much from history. The Chinese would say you can, because, you know, that demonstrates their sovereignty over it. China's got a very good record on sorting out its border disputes. So China's only been a state since uh, 1949, when the People's Republic was founded by Chairman Mao, and it has 14 land borders. And when it was founded in 1949, there were disputes on every one of those borders. And since that time, all but essentially one of them, which I'll qualify in a minute, has been negotiated satisfactorily inch by inch, right? So all the borders apart from one are now agreed. Okay, and that's the one with India where there's been these recent, recent skirmishing. But last week, both India and China agreed to step back. In, 19, in November 1962, there was another clash where China just drove its tanks straight into, into India and pushed right in, but then withdrew to the original border. But basically, there were 14 borders. They were all disputed, and all but one has been sorted. So I think we should just let China... You know, depoliticize this and let China sort it out with the other people who have claims because they've got a good track record. But if if the West starts intervening, it'll just heighten all the problems, make it far more difficult for China to compromise and far more difficult for the other sides to compromise. So I, I think we should just kind of, you know, recognize not really, we, we, we don't really, I think, have a, a role that can, can be terribly constructive. 
other than than just perpetuating the quarrels. How should the US and their neighbours view China's expansion policy? Should they be worried about that? You see, I would would quarrel whether it's an expansion policy. China's trying to extend its influence. You know, I, I don't dispute that. But they're not, they're not trying to expand their in influence by you know, military takeover. You know, they, 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 they are very clear in their own minds where the, where the borders of China are, and that includes Taiwan and Hong Kong. We'll talk about those separately. But for, the, for other countries like that border China, like Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, and so on, you know, those borders are, are fixed, and China's trying to extend its influence by using trade and you know, economic heft, not military. Why do you think there is this perception that China wants to expand and move into <laughs> other people's territories? There are, well, there, are, there, are also, there are all sorts of reasons for that, but the basic reason is the lack of understanding about the truth of China in, in the Western context, and that's for a whole series of reasons. So the, the, the basic problem is that it's too easy to conflate Chinese communism with Soviet communism. Right, that that's just ba- that's a really fundamental mistake that lots of people make. You know, it's a Leninist system; it just crushes anybody in its way. It's out to kind of expand. It's the evil empire. Yeah, you know, because that's the way that Russia was perceived, and it, it's a terrible mistake to try and conflate Chinese communism and Soviet communism. For a start off, Soviet communism failed, whereas China is immensely successful, even by our own metric. It's immensely successful what it's done over the last you know few decades and we've just spent 30 years saying oh china will become more like the west and then oh you know china will never be able to make quality products and then oh china will never be able to innovate right and it just completely destroys all that accepted accepted wisdom so i, I think there's a tremendous problem about really understanding china because you know it's complex yeah the names are difficult it's all totally different concepts it's difficult to understand but it has got you know, tremendously valuable things like you know, its ideal state of society, not terribly different from how we'd like to see ours. It is different and there are important differences. But you know, if you look at kind of philosophers like Mencius, right, in the Chinese context and compare that with Aristotle, they're not terribly different. It's about, you know, how do you leave a good li- lead a good life? And that's kind of finding a place within your own community. So, so I, I think that if we actually really understood China properly, we'd find that there's much, we had much more in common than we could ever possibly imagine. Do you think China are taking time to also understand the Western culture? Well, China, China did spend an, a vast amount of time understanding Western culture. And the reason why it did that is it had no option. So it basically, it came, it came out of the uh, Cultural Revolution in 1976 when Mao died. So Chairman Mao basically was chaired the People's Republic for the first 26 years of its life or whatever it was. And, and it was a disaster. And uh, then, then, then uh, the, the next leader was someone called Deng Xiaoping, who was intensely pragmatic. And he one of the first things he did was send a group of top bureaucrats from China to visit Europe. And these bureaucrats visited Europe, I think it was, I think it was in 1977. And they went to Germany and they saw a modern power station and they saw a railway and they saw a computer controlled aircraft landing system. And they were absolutely, completely staggered, right? Because there was nothing remotely comparable in China. 
So they realized that they'd wasted 30 years and there was an intense competition to catch up. So when those guys, they spent six weeks in Germany, France, I think they came to the UK. When they went back to China, they arrived at the airport and there was a convoy to meet them at the airport and they drove straight to Jungnanhai, which is a central government compound. And they opened a Politburo meeting and that just kept open right overnight and into the following morning because they're all so excited about what they found. But they realized that they were like decades behind. And then Deng went to America and saw you know, the situation in America. And they said, if we don't study how the Westerners have achieved what they've achieved, we could never conceivably catch up. So they made it their business to study the way that Western society is organized. There's been a lot of, there's a lot of fear around China and in in the West around their, you know, these Chinese hackers, China, you know, the espionage cases involving Huawei and the US government. What are your thoughts in that area? So I, I think to try to say that it's an insurmountable espionage problem is kidding ourselves. Right, so what, the one thing you should never do is kid yourself. The head of GCHQ said there is a problem. We're perfectly capable of dealing with it. GCHQ? The kind of MI5, MI6, the, the Government Secret Service Communication Centre. Right. So, you know, I, I don't pretend to understand the technicalities. So there probably are some weaknesses there. But if we say that we're doing this because of espionage, we're kidding ourselves. The reason why Huawei has been blocked from Western telecommunication, telecommunications networks is because they've got a better product at a lower price and they will dominate the market unless they're stopped. And it's a strategic industry. That, that's the reason why. And if we kid ourselves that it's all about espionage, we'll miss the point of what's really going on. So it's a very, it's a valid decision. It's a valid decision to say, we don't want Huawei in our networks. But there are consequences, and I don't think the consequences are fully understood. First of all, in cost to ourselves. But there's another thing, which is what's going on in the, in the wider world, right? So the Brookings Institution estimates that the, which is a, a think tank in the US, fairly sort of middle of the road, sensible think tank. They estimate that global spending by the middle class, right, is about 36 trillion US dollars equivalent at the moment. And that will increase between 2015 to 2030, it will increase by 29 trillion. Massive. Wow, almost 60 trillion. Yeah. Is that a year? Yeah, it's basically, basically doubling. It's actually increased by 80%. But out of that 29 trillion, only 1 trillion will occur in the US and Europe. Really? So, so the growth of the world's economy is going to increase by almost double. So so we're now at 36, it will increase by 29, but of that increase, only one trillion will take place in the US and the EU and Europe, okay? So all of it is basically, eight, eight trillion is China. If you add in kind of the other parts of Eastern Asia that are very integrated with China, it takes it up to 12. India's meant to be about five, but personally, I don't believe that. And then you've got Africa and South America. And Central, Asia, and Central Asia, you know, the, the Central Asian republics. So the point is that the people who are in Africa or South America or Central Asia, they're going to buy the best kit at the lowest possible price. Yeah, they don't care about ESP. I mean, they haven't got anything that anyone's particularly interested in you know, spying on. I'm not sure we have either, really. 
But it, what 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 we're doing is we're just cutting ourselves off from a reality that's going to happen. Whatever happens, China is going to be dominant in those areas, right? So if we just say oh, it's just because we're you know we're worried about spy you know spying, that's kidding ourselves. It's much deeper than that, and that goes across right across the board with the way that China's you know dealing with. China's about to introduce an e-currency, the e-yuan, right? So if you go to China now. Basically, people pay with their iPhones or their Huawei phones. Mm. You know, the, the, the prevalence of it is, is absolutely massive over there. So you can go to places which don't accept cash anymore. I remember seeing it was at least four years ago, but there was, there was a guy who was a peasant farmer and he was selling crab apples and he got on a tricycle with a sort of truck, you know, sort of trailer behind him. And he'd come into Beijing, he was selling these crab apples, right? But he had a QQ square. That was how he's accepting money, but it's just still it's still current, still normal currency. There is, there is, but there, there yeah. won't, there won't be five years time. There probably won't be. They're light years ahead of us. What's your take on the political unrest in Hong Kong at the moment? That that's that's complicated, but um, to just characterise it as being a struggle for democracy is far too simplistic. Of course, everybody wants to be able to control their own lives better they want to be able to affect their futures and be invested in their future so i totally get all that you have to set it into a context to try and look look at the way things have developed so i'm afraid i start with the fact that you know hong kong hong kong is part of china right there's there's no getting around that it is part of china because the absolute i've never heard a single person on the mainland of china who wouldn't kind of fight to the death for the borders Right. So it's just the political reality that Hong Kong is part of China. Article 21 of the basic law. The basic law is China is um, Hong Kong's mini constitution, which is agreed between the UK and the Chinese government. Article 21 requires LegCo, which is Hong Kong's parliament, to pass a new security law. Okay, because the old security law is completely outdated. It's part of the criminal code, and it had stuff like you know you'd spend the rest of your life in jail for offending Her Majesty's person and stuff like that. So it's completely outdated. So when China took over in 1997, there was a commitment in the basic law to enact a new security law. Right? Every country has a security law. So the Chinese left it up to LegCo to do that. LegCo never did it. Right? So for 21 years, they failed to pass a new security law. Second thing I'd say is that the reporting in Hong Kong is uh, about Hong Kong, I think has been extremely one-sided. So Hong Kong society itself is quite split. So for example, there was a petition that was signed by 2.85 million people um, last, last autumn in support of the national security law. And that, was, that wasn't reported in the West, right? So there are very strong feelings on both sides and, and it's not surprising. So, you know, there were scenes of terrible violence in Hong Kong, like, you know, police cars being overturned and set on fire with police inside. There was, there was an instance outside, there's a video clip of basically uh, some protesters broke into a sports store in the university where there are crossbows. And there is a, there are videos of the police struggling in a hail of crossbow bolts, oh, right? One, one guy gets one straight through his calf, right? No government will put up with that. It's a complete fantasy that, you know, that, that is totally beyond the pale. So Hong Kong society itself is split. It's not so simple. And finally, I think what we have to do is look at the real root cause of it. And a lot of it 
part of it is the inability to express oneself. I get all that. But also there are other things where, which are much less contentious, like social injustices. And I, I would argue that is a you know, huge factor. You know, the lack of access to affordable medical treatment, for example. You know, so, so, so there are other deep societal problems in Hong Kong that have nothing to do with democracy and are actually, in my opinion, exacerbated by you know, purely a democratic free market system with increasing inequality and totally unaffordable housing. And the stock of the housing is now very old and in terrible condition. You'll definitely have an interesting take on this because China, from what we see in the Western media, it looks like a place where you probably can't get away with protesting too much. There's a perception that the people are oppressed like is by the government. From someone that's spent a lot of time there and really understands intimately how the country and how the people operate. What's what's your view on that? The idea that the Chinese people don't protest is complete completely untrue. So so there are there are mass protests across China every single day. So I, I've personally been in a government building on two separate occasions when the government building has been surrounded by protesters and I haven't been able to get out. So then then you have to kind of think about well what are they protesting about? And and that also is the Chinese government actually uses protest to as part of its kind of design of policy. So the Chinese government is, is the largest user of opinion polls in the world. So it's constantly asking people, trying to find out what people are concerned about to try and address those issues. And I know that sounds as though it's kind of bullshit. I get that to the Westerner who hasn't lived there. But if you just go and look at the state of basically semi-urban China now and compare it with how it was 10 years ago, the air quality, the water quality, and the way that waste is disposed of is totally transformed, particularly the air quality. Uh, and and, that, and that's, that's a reaction to the fact that the Chinese people are incredibly dissatisfied. So, so, so the Chinese government actually is extremely reactive to protest. So the, the issue is when, what can you protest about and what, you, what can't you protest about? So for most issues, the Chinese government will be receptive to protest and unlikely to punish people. Not always, but unlikely. The one thing you can't protest about, and of course, this kind of underpins our notion of democracy, is you can't challenge the right of the government to govern. So if, if you want to overthrow the government, you're gonna, you, know, you, ju you just can't do it. You can't get into opposition with the government on basic principle. You can complain about things they're not doing well, about the inefficiency, about unfairness. You can't challenge its right to govern. But the people, I, I do think the people who deeply care about that are in a tiny minority. It doesn't mean to say that their aspirations aren't, aren't just as valid, but they, they are a tiny minority. And part of the reason for that is because the Chinese government has just done such a fantastically good job at delivering on its promises over the last 30 years. Because basically people's lives in China are incomparably better now than they were 30 years ago. And in, in that kind of situation, people generally don't protest. And the, the other thing, of course, is the complete mess that they view in the West. I mean, you know, so, 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 so you know, the, the UK's response to COVID has left 120,000 people dead. The Chinese government is capable of making very, very strong action, right? So the figures in China are uh, 4,000 dead, right? So say, say that's a total lie and they, they're only disclosing one in 10 mm. or even one in a hundred. Yeah. But it, it, that, that couldn't be the, it couldn't be the case because social media is far too vibrant in China. 
you know, it, it would it would burst out. They wouldn't be able to cover that up. So say it's out by a factor of 10, is 40,000 in a country of 1.3 billion. I'm telling you, in, in Shandong province, one that I know quite well, has a um, population of 90 million people. If 120,000 people had died of COVID in Shandong, there would have been a rebellion. You know, you talk about social media. Is, is, the, social, is the social media and the internet not quite highly monitored over there? It's 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 it, it's it's monitored and it's censored, but again, it's it's censored. It's not censored for normal protest. It is censored for anyone who challenges the government, right? So so the, the, there was a study which was done, admittedly quite a long time ago now, so it might be out of date. But basically, um, there was someone who studied URLs that were deleted, so basically censorship, and um, they, they couldn't find any correlation between the. Uh, posts that were critical of the government or supportive of the government. So say if there's a post that said, you know, there's been um, a local deputy mayor who's, you know, like a wolf and he's stealing tax revenues, mm. and stuff, that might not get censored. So basically what it was is if, if there's a potential for people rallying around that issue and getting together in appreciable numbers, that, that's what the Chinese government doesn't like. So it doesn't, it doesn't mind if you're critical of it. It, mind, it minds if you challenge its fundamental right to rule. Right. Because, because it, and, and, and the ethical justification of that is that China throughout the last 2000 years has gone through periods of immense stability where everything has flourished, you know, the arts have flourished, um, get great, great writers, cosmopolitan cities rise up, you know, pottery, trade, all this kind of thing goes incredibly, flourishes. And then gradually power at the center gets corrupted and weakens and then the whole state falls apart and you get 100 years of total war and then out of that a peasant emperor arises binds everyone together again and then you have another 300 years of stability yeah so 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 they they have an absolute visceral hatred of the idea of chaos uh, and and they do they, they regard western society as having tremendous strengths in terms of individual expression innovation, it's science, medicine, it's literature, all those things. But it thinks its government's dysfunctional. Mm. Um, no, I mean, I think they've got a point. When you talk about COVID, a lot of the blame is pointed squarely at China. Do they take responsibility for that? I mean, it's, it's, it's tough to... Uh, right. So there is a lot of blame on China. If someone like the WHO says, oh, actually, we've gone through this whole process and we've got some problems that we think is extremely unlikely to escape from that virology lab, for example, or if the ex-president of GPs Association in the UK gives Lancet an interview saying that the Chinese government, we should be grateful to the Chinese government for the actions that they took, that doesn't get coverage, right? I think you've got to be really, really careful about blaming the Chinese, because what they actually did was they, they gave the world about two months, right? But we just completely ignored that. The one thing that's unique about China is they were the only country had no warning, right? So we, we had months of warning. Boris Johnson says, well, I'm going to carry on shaking hands with people. I don't care about this. You know, and cut to like a month later and he's intensive care. So it's difficult for me to see how... You can blame the China. I mean, can you imagine if you kind of blamed the people of Kent for the Kent variant of COVID? Or you blame people in Cameroon for AIDS. You imagine if, if anybody did that. I think maybe some of the blame comes from the fact that it originated in China from someone eating a bat. 
then they'll link that to the culture of China. Right, okay, right, right. But okay, so so that's a classic example, right? Because there's a, a, actually the nobody knows where it came from. No, nobody knows where it came from. And and there, of course, there are some issues with animal cruelty and so on in China. But you know, the idea of Chinese people sort of sitting around a round table with a, you know, all their chopsticks, a big bowl of bats is not helpful in trying to understand what's been going on, right? What actually happened was that, that it, nobody knows where it came from yet, okay? So maybe the Chinese are trying to cover it up. Maybe they aren't, who the hell knows? Well, what happened was there was a cover up at the local area in Wuhan. That's what people blame the Chinese for. Right. What they do, unfortunately, what they do is they conflate these local governments with the entire system, right? So as soon as the central government found out there was a problem, whack, 60 million people quarantined, just like that, okay? And it works, right? And people say, oh, you can't do that in the West because, you know, we've got a different society. Well, what about Australia? What about New Zealand? They did it. So why can't we? We're still not under lockdown now. We're a year on. We're still not under lockdown. Right? I had a message from someone, you know, a really good friend of mine recently, who was um, upset because she couldn't get to church because of the snow. Why are the church is still open? <laughs> yeah, that's not a lockdown. We, you know, the huge argument about whether the borders should shut to people coming in. China just shut everything down and they dealt with it. So the Chinese economy is com was completely back to normal by about July. Right. So. Uh, yeah, my son lives in China and he was sort of you know, going on holiday inside China, flying down to Yunnan. It was all back to normal, right? And the cost, the cost to us is terrible mm. because, you know, we're up 400 billion of increased borrowings, which are all going to have to be repaid by the next generation. And they're the people who suffer most from not having social contact and the ones who are at least at risk. You couldn't make it up in mm. terms of social injustice. Finally, if, if you had one tip for someone that wanted to go and do business in China, what would that be? Study China's history to the stage where you can see the current manifestation of the Chinese state under Xi Jinping as just being an extension of the state that existed under imperial times right from the time before Christ. Very interesting. Tim Clissel, thank you very much for your time, mate. You're welcome. And thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, make sure you share it with your mates and it'd be great if you could leave us a review as well. We'll be back again next week.